Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet on Sundays at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, who doesn't? You can select Beacon Church of Long Island as a supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will go to supporting the work at Beacon. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So, Dan Crenshaw is a three tour Navy SEAL who lost his eye from an IED in Afghanistan. He recently won a seat in Congress for the great state of Texas. Now, He's also well-known because a month or so ago, he was the butt of a joke at Saturday Night Live. And uh, Pete Davidson mocked Dan by saying that he looked like a hitman in a porno movie and said something like, he lost an eye in war or whatever, kind of in a dismissive way. Clearly a tasteless joke. Left and right roundly condemned him, and he apologized uh, to Dan Crenshaw on air. Congressman Crenshaw later wrote an opinion piece in the Washington Post, and he agreed that the comment was offensive, but he clarified that it had not offended him. I thought that was such an interesting way of phrasing things. He didn't uh, call for an apology. He didn't demand that someone be fired. He even went on air at SNL's request uh, to sort of point it out, make light, and as well to honor vets. The congressman handled it with civility and with dignity and for just a brief moment reminded Americans of something. He said it like this, I also could not help but note that this was another chapter in a phenomenon that has taken complete control of the national discourse outrage culture. It seems like every not-so-carefully-worded public misstep must be punished to the fullest extent, replete with soapbox lectures and demands for apologies. Anyone who doesn't show the expected level of outrage will be labeled a coward or an apologist for bad behavior. I get the feeling that regular, hard-working, generally unoffended Americans sigh with exhaustion daily. (sighs) And that's so often how we feel. And I agree with what he is saying, except for maybe one little qualifier. It's not so easy for us to point to the national discourse and say, they're the ones with the problem. Because in my experience, it seems like we are increasingly living this reality in our own lives as well. I mean, Imagine you are posting something out on Facebook. Have you ever noticed when a friend of yours decides they no longer want to be your friend on Facebook? Have any of you been unfriended because of something that you had put out on social media? I mean, actually, how many of you have unfriended me because of something? No, no, don't even, 
I don't want to actually know the, the answer to, to that. Um, but, I mean, you know what this is like, right? How many of you have actually wanted to unfriend someone? You know, because of some sort of like, you know, you're like, oh, I really shouldn't. I probably couldn't. I mean, it'd be a problem for me if I did. But, you know, I sort of want to because of their idiotic social presence. We kind of feel this way. We often think to ourselves, this is a, this is a, a thing now. Now I'm upset. I'm frustrated. I mean, we just got through a whole season of Thanksgiving, and we heard plenty of stories of family fights at Thanksgiving. In fact, people aren't sure how they're going to handle Christmas now because Thanksgiving went so badly. It was usually something about Trump or immigration or something like that that kind of store the whole thing wrong. We've actually even heard, really, I think it might even be for some of the first time, we heard whispers from a small group or two at Beacon that people are saying, you know, I'm not really so sure, like, you know, if this group is a good fit because, you know, these people over here, they think differently about these things and I can't believe they would feel that way and these people, I've even had a couple of people leave it, they're leaving the, the building here and at the door they'll say, you know, I'm just not really sure if I fit. And, you know, some people say because, you know, it just seems like everybody here is so conservative, and then I'll have, a, like, on the same day, you'll have someone say, I don't know, it just feels like the church is just too liberal. <laughs> I'm like, you know, we, you two should talk and fight it out and let me know how you're talking the same day you can get that kind of a comment. We're so easily offended. We catastrophize everything. So how do we stop fighting with our crazy family? And how do we... How do we deal with our politically ignorant neighbor who just doesn't get it? Or that opinionated boss who would, would be better if she would keep her mouth shut? Or if he would stop with all of his comments that aren't related to work? And what do we do with all of the other frustratingly irritating people? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at Today in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Colossae, and they were as different from each other as we are different from each other here. This was a first century church, and uh, you know, they had Romans and they had Jews, and they had Romans who were acting like Jews, and they had Jews who were acting like Romans. They had immigrants, some who were there by choice and others who had been forced to be there. They had the rich, they had the poor, they had an incredible amount of diversity in this early church. And the one thing that, that this letter goes back to again and again and again is Paul tells us, remember your salvation. Remember your salvation, particularly your forgiveness. Remember our forgiveness. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He highlights this and he does it time and time again. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Just flip over there real quick. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. 
He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He said, listen, you were dead in your sins. Dead. You were uncircumcised of heart. That means that that we, all of these attitudes and and behaviors and thoughts that needed to be be cut out of your life, very surgically and carefully cut out of the sensitive parts of your soul, like a circumcision. We're going to cut these things out. They all had to be done. That means we had been living in these ongoing sin issues. He even says that we were legally guilty before God. That's who we are. And God, despite our ignorance, despite our behavior, He loved us. He loved us. And He suffered. He suffered so we wouldn't have to. In verse 14, he says he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. So God is no longer going to hold our stupid and our disrespectful, our hurtful words, our ignorant actions. He's no longer going to hold them against us. And remembering our forgiveness, it ought to change our behavior. He goes back to it again and again because he's saying, listen, this is what was done for you. Now it's time for you to do that for others. I think he describes a way that we can suffer for the good of others. Look at chapter 1, verse 24. Chapter 1, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So many people, they look at this, this is such a, an unusual idea. But I think the gist of it is that Paul was saying, listen, there is a part in, there is a way in which I can suffer for you. I'm bringing the suffering of Christ to you through my own suffering. And I think that Christians can, in fact, suffer for others. We make them aware of the suffering of Christ on their behalf by doing it ourselves. So whenever there are disagreements, we have the opportunity to suffer for another person. And I don't understand why it is that we immediately view this as as an ignoble and unacceptable burden. I mean, just think about that. Someone irritates us, and our mind first jumps to justice or payback or how I'm going to make certain that you get yours. That's the first thing we do. We don't don't immediately jump to to the opposite. We don't say, but wait, what if in fact the right response, what if the good thing, what if the, the thing that I ought to be doing is to suffer for them? We're like, no, 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 they need to suffer for what they did. That's the right, in what world is that, how is that the right response? How do we assume, see, we're wired in this way because of sin in our hearts that the the gospel is trying to root out. But the scriptures tell us this in chapter 3, verse 13. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 13. He says, bear with one another and forgive. Bear with one another and forgive. As the Lord forgave you. There it is again. 
He hits it, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. As the Lord, you bear with one another. Thomas Akempis, a brilliant writer and a bit of a mystic in uh, many, many centuries ago, he said, Take pains to be patient in bearing all the faults and weaknesses of others. For you, too, have many flaws that others must put up with. If you cannot make yourself as you would like to be, how can you expect to have another person entirely to your liking? We would willingly have others be perfect, and yet we fail to correct our own faults. We want others to be strictly corrected, and yet we are unwilling to be corrected ourselves. Other people's far-ranging freedom annoys us, and yet we insist on having our own way. We wish others to be tied down by rules, and yet we will not allow ourselves to be held in check in any way at all. It is evident how rarely we think of our neighbor as ourselves. See, we need to give compassion and patience. That's how we suffer for others. And we get to give it even to those that we don't think deserves it. If they don't deserve it, all the better. It puts us more in line with how Christ lived for us. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. He lists some of these values for us. This is, how you, this is how he wants you to act. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. He just strings them all together like a you know, piece of cake. You just do these things. Everything will work out just fine. <laughs> yeah, it's easy enough to say. We'll take a look at just two of them. Compassion. So compassion refers to sort of the inner parts, you know, that, that feeling. That when the scriptures talk about it, it's like your, it's like your abdomen, it's your innards, it's your bowels. And, that, and that's in large part, it's also the word used for the womb sometimes. And the reason being is when, when something warms your heart, where do you feel it? You don't actually feel it, right? We say warms your heart, but you don't actually, if you feel it here, you're probably running to the hospital, right? So you're, you're feeling it here. Like if you ever happen to see, I don't know, say like, pictures of turtles being freed from fishing nets, and you go, oh, that's so sweet. You're like, it's right here is where you feel it, right? There's like an emotional response that you can, that creates this physical experience in the abdomen. That's really what it's about. And we see this in the scriptures. So you remember the story when uh, Jesus, he was about to feed the 5,000. He was walking through the wilderness. He'd been teaching them a whole big crowd of people. And he says, listen, these people are frazzled. They're harried. They're like, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And it said there that Jesus had compassion on them. He felt their angst, their pain, their suffering. He felt it and he acted. Maybe you remember the story of, they call it the prodigal son, right? And so this dad, he's got this son and the son demands his inheritance, which is in effect saying, dad, I wish you were dead and I can get my payout early. And in that culture, this was, I mean, in our culture, that would be terrible. And that, in that culture, it was unacceptable. It was, un, it was the height of, of immoral disrespect. And the father paid him out, and the kid went off. He squandered it, as you would expect when you're reading this story. And he comes groveling back to his father, dirt poor, tail between his legs. And at the moment where the father ought to pay him back for what he did and shame him, like he rightly deserved. Instead, it says that the father saw him off in the distance and he had compassion. That's the word, compassion. And then he ran to his son like a fool. There's a story of how God sees us. Remember the story, they call it the Good Samaritan, right? It's such a beautiful story. There's this guy, he's a Jew, he gets beaten up by robbers and, stole, and robbed and he's left on the side of the road to die and, and religious people, they come by him 
religious Jews, the leaders of the day, and they do nothing. There's trouble here. There's criminals. Who knows what's going on? I don't want to get dirty. I got this blood and everything. I got to get out of here. And they just walk right by. The Samaritan comes by. The Samaritan, the Jews were in constant conflict with each other. The Samaritan sees him and he says, no, no, no. He had compassion. That's the word. If he had compassion on him. And so he did. He felt his pain and he acted on it. Think about it. What makes us irritated with people? I mean, what makes us irritated? It's because they're different from us. But the differences are God's design. Do you guys know, any guesses? To, t- turn to the person next to you and tell them how many varieties of turtles you think there are in the world. How many varieties of turtles do you think exist? Go ahead and tell the person next to you what, what your answer is. All right. All right, let's see, let's see who gets it. How many varieties of turtles are there? Any guesses? Any takers? 250. That's getting, that's pretty good. That's getting pretty close. Any, what, who else? Any other guesses? How many? 500? Did, did anyone guess 300? Anyone? Did anyone get, who was that close to 300? You did? All right, here you go. We got a box of turtles for you for getting the right number. You want to run those back to, to someone back there? They got, here you go. Yeah, those aren't yours. Those, she got it. So 300 varieties of turtles. You know the largest, six foot, six inches, weighing 2,000 pounds, the leatherback sea turtle. The tiniest, the speckled padloper tortoise, average length of three inches and weighing in at five ounces. That's the diversity. 300 varieties from this to this. That's how God sees just turtles. You don't even want to guess how many beetles there are. But I mean, just, it is, it is incredible because God loves diversity. He loves the differences. He designed them this way. And these differences, they help to shape us and they sharpen us and they force us out of our small-minded assumptions about the world if we will let them. And Jesus found himself with all sorts of different kinds of people. The Samaritan woman of questionable character, he loved her. The Roman soldiers who were pawns of oppression, he loved them. There were tax collectors. You know how people back then felt about tax collectors? Yes, exactly how we feel about tax collectors, but maybe times 10. Like, like, no, they were just, and Jesus found himself loving tax collectors. And there were fishermen, and there were priests, and and there were pig herders, and they were, there were stay-at-home moms and international traders, and there were even lawyers that he loved. Can you believe that? And crazy cat people. He loved them, too. Like, it's just the list. And all of these incredible differences he loved. And Christians, we got to learn to love and respect and honor all sorts of different people. Then he says patience. Patience actually stems, the, the, the rationale behind it is, that God, is that it actually reflects who God is. Exodus 34, verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So that's... That's a tall order. That's the God we serve. 
That's how we ought to live in this world, with patience. I came across a great definition. You're going you're to like this one. It's a state of emotional calm. I like that already. Emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune. Now, that's where I would have liked to put the period. That's not where the author put the period. Ready? So this part, very, you're going to want to write this one down. Ready? A state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune and without complaint or irritation. So you're telling me that if I complain about it or if I'm irritated about it, it doesn't qualify as patience? <laughs> Ugh. Jesus ties our patience to the patience that the Father has in the parable of the unjust steward. He says, how in the world can you expect to get patience from God if you refuse to give patience to others for much more trivial offenses? His patience with us leads us to salvation in Romans chapter 2 and in 2 Peter chapter 3. One of the authors wrote that the word itself, when it's used of humans, isn't simply to benefit other people. It is a benefit to other people, but that's not primarily how it's used. The idea of patience is that it benefits you. It's a virtue that you need to develop for you. Sure, other people benefit from it, but they're going to benefit from your, your compassion. It's you who is going to benefit from the cultivation of patience. And in fact, it's your responsibility to cultivate it. So, how is it that we get to deal with the crazy? Well, we start with forgiveness. There's got to be some sort of a constant awareness of our brokenness and our sin. And this growing attitude for God's gift of forgiveness and awareness of it is key. I mean, you know how easy it is to get irritated at people and to treat them poorly for the behaviors that we actually have done to others. It's the height of hypocrisy. And yet it happens all the time. We start with the basis of forgiveness rooted in Jesus. Then we decide to suffer for them. And I think it really does have to be a decision. We have to come to a place in our spiritual journey where we say, it is right for me to suffer for another person. It is right. See, so often it's justice it's a sense of what is owed me that makes us behave in one way or the other. And I think we have to decide that it is, in fact, right to suffer for them on behalf of God, to give them compassion and to develop in ourselves patience. And can you imagine just how beautiful compassion and patience would be in a world like ours, a world that is so filled with outrage, now, some practical tips to decrease your own levels of irritation. So here we go. You're going to decrease the irritation so that you can do better in this, in the world, in honoring Christ. First thing is you ask a question. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? So when you're irritated, what is it that we usually ask? I mean, what's kind of going on? We get irritated and what are we really, what, what's kind of behind that? I think usually we're saying, I mean, what is wrong with this person? Right? I mean, that's what's driving us. What is wrong with them? But we're not really asking it because we sort of already know because we're smart, we're sophisticated, we're good-looking, and they're idiots. 
right? And so we know already, we're not really saying, what's, what's wrong with them? We're saying, what is wrong with you? Because, you know, I'm irritated because of you. And instead of asking what's wrong with them, we get to ask, what's wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Why does this, what does this irritation tell me about me? What do I learn? What can I see? Try it. Try, just try it right here for a moment. Think about some irritating person. Not me. Just <laughs> other, maybe not the person next to you either. You could, or if you do, don't look at them like <laughs> thinking of you, right? No, don't, don't do that. Just think of some irritating person. I'm, I'm sure it'll take you a while to find one. Now, you ready for some freedom from the crazy? You ready for some freedom? This is going to work. I'm telling you. You're going to say this with me. You're going to say, they aren't causing my irritation. You ready? Say that with me. They aren't causing my irritation. Now, you put someone in your head that's irritating you, and let's say it again. They aren't causing my irritation. And I know what a lot of you are thinking. You're thinking, I do not believe you. You make me repeat it, but you are wrong because they really are irritating. What I'm telling you is, no, the vast majority of the time, you are irritated because of you. And maybe God has something to teach you in this moment. In fact, maybe that's why it's happening. Maybe God is actually orchestrating all of these differences. It's possible, in fact, even probable. Thomas Akempis, he came in on this again. He said, perhaps it is this way to try our patience. For without trials, our merits count for little. When you run into such problems, you ought to pray that God may find it fitting to help you and that you may bear your troubles well. Ow. Then you get to ask yourself, is this a mirror? Is this a mirror? Am I irritated? Because the flaw that I perceive in them is actually a flaw that I perceive in myself. Maybe I am repressing it and maybe I am projecting it onto them or the other person. And I'm reading this this week and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I'm not really sure. That's not really a helpful point. I'm not really buying it. And then I came across the same author and he said, this is almost always true, but hardly anyone recognizes it. <laughs> and I went, okay, <laughs> like I didn't. So I kind of got to go back there and I start looking at it myself and I start to ask, is this a possibility? Maybe this person's actions is really revealing something about myself and, and I just, maybe it's things I can't stand about myself. Maybe there are things that are frustrating. Maybe there are things that I'm embarrassed by or that I'm ashamed of. And maybe you have a similar circumstance where looking at them is actually difficult for you because of what it is showing you about you. So we got to search our hearts and our minds and we got to let this irritation turn to gratitude, which it can do when you start to learn something important about yourself. Then we got we to examine expectations. Examine expectations. So are you really sure that you ought to be irritated by this thing? Because this person could do the same exact thing or say the same thing in other company and not irritate people. But why is it irritating you? Right? Why, why must this person accommodate you? What makes you the deciding factor? 
this is sadly the world that I actually live in. This is how I relate much to the world, and it, it might be true that I have a little bit of a reputation um, for getting frustrated and maybe not for always treating uh, people well. The words like condescension and disrespect and even mean have occasionally uh, been used uh, by my family this week about me. Um, and so you have to, I have to ask myself, why should this person live up to my expectations? You know, these are the expectations that have been shaped in me through my, my parents or my teachers, my culture, my spouse. They've, they have, they've all shaped me. And now I need them to act and react and be the same way that I want them to be? I mean, they don't have your personality. They don't have your experiences. They weren't part of your tribe. Why should they be like you? And what makes us think that we can demand any of those things from people? Then to know all is to forgive all. What about the reality that this person can't help the way that they are responding anymore, you can help being frustrated by what they did. Why, do, why are we assuming anything other than the fact that they too are products of their culture, of their tribe, of their background? And that has to play into this conversation because if you really saw how this person has suffered... I mean, if you truly saw what they have been through and what brought them to behave in this way, you would see them as they really are. And you would see them as God sees them. You would see how every little pebble of hurt, of disrespect, of struggle, of slight has piled up into this crushing weight on their shoulders. And offering forgiveness frees them for just a little bit. For even just a few moments, your gift of forgiveness can free them from their terrible burden and it could move your two souls closer together in the love of Christ. And then... You've got to ask yourself, what's the end goal here, all right? I'm going to assume for just a minute that the person really is in need of adjustments. You'll notice so far everything has been your responsibility. We're going to talk about how to deal with like relational conflict and all that kind of stuff in the new year. So I don't want to develop it much here. But let's say there really is something that's going on. They really are cruel. They really are unjust. They really are rude. And you see it and you're irritated and, you're, and rightly so. Then what? Well, you want to, we're still trying to talk about decreasing the irritation. Ask yourself, does the irritation on my part help? What's, what's the end goal? What do you want to see happen? Where do you want this to go? How often do you think your irritation has made it better? Has gotten you to the end you want to go to? Most likely your irritation, your frustration, your anger, it increases the whole general sense of frustration and irritation and it makes people less likely to hear the hard words that you need to speak if you really want to help then let your irritation 
go because it is the enemy of your ultimate goal. And you'd be much more effective in your offer to help without it. We're going to do, again, a deep dive into relationships in the new year, so I'm going to leave it for now. My encouragement to you is to let Christ's forgiveness, his compassion, and his patience with you, his willingness to suffer on your behalf. I want to encourage you to let that fuel your efforts to diffuse all of these crazy family and friend and neighbor conflicts, to bring some sort of harmony and peace into this politicized world. May our compassion, may our patience work itself out in genuine community as we learn from those different from us and we suffer for them on Christ's behalf. I'm going to ask the band to come up and lead us uh, into uh, the Lord's table here, but as they do that, I just want to say a word of uh, a prayer for all of us. Let's pray. Father, what, uh, what we are doing here this morning is we come and we worship, we sing, we go to the Lord's table, and we hear from your word. Lord, we love the community and we love the friendships and all of that. And what we want, Lord, is, is for you to speak to our hearts, to convict us of the, the sin and the rebellion so that we might be able to, to relish your forgiveness, your grace, and your love. Father, may we take it so much further than that so that we don't simply delight ourselves in it, but instead we release it into the world through the power of Christ. Amen. Amen.